So we are back in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah 44. Now you see a large portion of scripture before you. And um, let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your mercy and goodness that you show us. Uh, help me even now to uh, bring these words to your dear people. And, the, and if there's someone here, uh, they do not know you as Savior, that their eyes would be open. But for all of your children, uh, that their eyes would be illuminated. That is, they would see you more and they would love you more. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message is Cyrus Used for Sovereign Purposes. Cyrus Used for Sovereign Purposes. And what I'm going to do this morning is give you a bit of an appetizer. I mean, we have all gone out to eat, and we, at times, not always, we order an appetizer. And that's something that comes before the meal. Uh, But the thing about the book of Isaiah, you know, it is so lofty and so grand Um, Just like sometimes when you may naturally go out and you have an appetizer, and lo and behold, when the main course comes, what happens? Oh, my, I'm full already. And in one sense, when I say that I'm going to offer you an appetizer, this won't be light, but it's going to give you a big view of what God is saying in relation to Cyrus and where he fits in in history and how God is sovereignly working to the glory of God and for the benefit of his people. It's a wonderful occasion um, for us to look at God's word. And there's something else that's in this passage that's important. Again, in the book of Isaiah, we keep being reminded time and time and time again that God is glorious, that God is sovereign, that God is mighty, that God is Savior, that God is Redeemer, and we can, in fact, trust him. We can trust this almighty God, the one who is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And I could say that every time we are in Isaiah in this particular section, because this is what God is saying of himself. Repeatedly, he reminds the people of God, there is no God, there is no other. And so why does he keep repeating himself? Because the tendency is for the people of God, and I would say for us to do what? We tend to do what? Forget. We tend to forget. Or either we think that somehow um, what God is saying is not as important. Or we have made substitutes for the Lord. And that was an issue that we looked at several weeks ago. They had substituted in Isaiah there in chapter 43, 9 through 20. They had substituted all of these false idols. And God is saying, why would you choose something that is false? Well, I, the true God, I am available to you. I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And I've said it through this series, I'm not sure how many times, but you will hear me say it it even more. God is showing his covenant faithfulness to a nation who has done nothing but show covenant treachery. And that is such a beautiful thing. And even as I've been thinking about preaching through this, and I'm uh, dealing with a situation that requires some tact and requires patience, Um, And it requires a sense in which you don't want to say, I give up on that person. And I was reminded even of these passages in Isaiah, how God is constantly saying of his people, I have not given up on you. You may think that I have, but I have not. You may think that the idols of Babylon are superior, but they are not. 
You may think that the Babylonians will keep you in exile forever. They will not. I have a specific plan that will unfold. Now, were they deserving of compassion? No. Were they deserving of being brought back from exile? No. Were they deserving that God would raise up a nation, the Persian nation, and then a particular person, this great soldier Cyrus, to deliver them, that they would go back to the land and they could rebuild? No, they were not deserving. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith, isn't it? Who is deserving? Who can earn this? No one can. And this is why it really is, and and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, perhaps in a different way. Uh, That's why it's unfortunate when people have such an undeveloped understanding of God and they have such a very much an undeveloped understanding of the Testaments because they want to say that the God of the Old Testament is this sort of like an ogre. And now we come to the New Testament. Jesus Christ calms God down, if you will. No, you have not read the word of God because you see constantly, consistently God showing patience toward a people who are so undeserving. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the Old Testament properly and Scripture properly, you see God's compassion and his kindness and his mercies even more pronounced. Why? Because you see the violation of his standards even more pronounced even in the Old Testament, time and time again. But he says, I'm a faithful God, and I will show myself faithful to you, and I do it for the glory of my name. It's a, this is a wealth of a meal here before us. And it's been that way since we began in chapter 40. We've been dining and dining. Well, I'm not sure about you. I know that I have. It's been quite a meal for me every time that I look into the text and I discover things that perhaps I've not seen before. And I always anticipate coming and sharing them with you. And I'm wondering, ah, did I do a job that's adequate? And in some senses, never really adequate but I hope that you've been helped along the way. There's something that we must see before we walk through this passage, and it is this. And if you would note chapters 44, verses 24, and then it would take us all the way to chapters 48, 22. This is another major section. And it really parallels, and this is beautifully done, it's going to parallel chapter 49 all the way to 53.12. And I love how uh, beautiful, and I have appreciated him over the many years that I first discovered um, French scholar, Old Testament scholar, Alex Mortier, and, and I love his understanding of this parallelism that takes place. Because what is happening here? Here is chapter 44, verse 24, all the way to 48. God is a God of great deliverance. And this deliverance is going to begin by him having raised up this Persian empire, and he's going to raise up this Persian leader, Cyrus. He is God's servant. And just briefly, notice what it says in 44. Notice what it says of Cyrus in chapter 44. He communicates there. um, Oh, I'm sorry, 45, 45. 45, notice what he says in verse 1. The Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed. Then he says in chapter 44, 28, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. So he is God's shepherd. He is God's 
anointed. And he is also God's servant. God's servant. But now if you hold that thought for a moment, he's anointed, he's a shepherd, he's a servant. Then if you were to go to chapters 49 to 53, do you hear what what comes to mind if you think chapters 49 to 53? What comes to mind if you hear chapters 52 and 53? The servant, the servant who is anointed, the servant who is the shepherd. And see, this is why it's entitled uh, Cyrus. He's used for sovereign purposes. And this is the beauty of God when you understand when we talk about God's using us for sovereign purposes. This is the beauty of when you understand sovereignty itself. Here is a servant, an anointed, a shepherd. Here is a servant, an anointed, a shepherd. One comes from a pagan nation, a pagan leader, and one is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would give his life as a ransom for many. Now, let me show you some of these parallels that are very interesting here. So we first see the work of Cyrus. And I said this is an appetizer for us because I'll be gone for a couple of weeks and we'll dive back in further. The work of Cyrus, we see this in chapters 44, verse 24, all the way through 48. And then we see the work of the servant in chapters 49, all the way to 50 through 12. Well, what are the particulars of it, though? Well, notice what it says in chapter 44, 24 to 28. There is a task that's stated in an agent that is finally named because God says, I have formed you in the womb. Notice 44, 24. I'm the maker of all things. And I have Cyrus, my shepherd. And notice what it says in 28. He will perform all my desire. So the task is stated Someone's going to perform all of God's desires, and the person that does it is named. Cyrus will do it. Now, I remind you again, as we've been communicating throughout these passages, that the people of God, when they read this, there is no great Persian empire. When the people of God read this, there is no Cyrus. It's not as if they read it and thought, yes, we've heard about the Persians. Yes, we've heard about the great Cyrus. I can understand why he would deliver us. That is not true. It's as if right now, and perhaps I'll just by way of an illustration, and the illustration may break down, so i give you a precursor to it. Um, if somehow right now someone wrote to us, and, and I'll just talk about America right now, and if someone were to say to us, Oh, America, you will be delivered from your nonsense and your vileness. You will return again, and my servant, and fill in the name, will deliver you. Uh, <laughs> And you say to yourself, we've never heard. Who is this person? How can that be? Things are so horrible here. That's not possible that we can be delivered. We, we see what is happening in our society. That is not possible at all. And you would say to yourself, I'm not sure if I believe this. Because I have n- no point in history for this person. And that's one reason that God keeps saying throughout, throughout, I'm the maker I'm the maker. I control all things. I make the heavens. I make the earth. I order them all. I know the first from the last. Because he's saying, if I know all of these things, don't you know I know what the future has? Is it anything for me to create, to raise up a Persian empire? Is it anything for me to raise up a Cyrus if I've set all the stars in order? 
That's nothing to me. And this is why he keeps stating it time and time again. But notice, if you will, go to chapter 49. 49, because we saw there was a task and there was an agent. But in 49, 1 through 6, there is also a task and an agent. And he says, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me. Notice verse 5, and he says, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his what? What does it say? Servant, to bring back Jacob to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord, and God, my God, is my strength. Notice verse 6. He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So there's a servant, Cyrus, and there's a servant, which would be Jesus Christ. But notice as well, um, there's a task that's confirmed, a task confirmed. Israel and the world, if we go back to chapter 45, go back to chapter 45. God is going to do a work in Israel, but not just in Israel. He's going to do a work in the world itself. So Cyrus is his anointed. And notice what he's going to do. I've taken him by the right hand. He's going to subdue nations. He's going to loose the loins of kings. He's going to open doors. And I'll come back to what we need to understand later on about who is ultimately behind it. God is at work not only in Judah, but God is at work in the nations because God will use Cyrus to even punish the nations along the way. He is sovereign over all things. Go back to chapter 49. Go back to 49. There's also a task there. It's Israel and the world. In verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of Yahweh, who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. And if you were to follow this thought through verse 12, he's essentially saying there is a plan for Israel and the world as well. And it goes back and forth between here is Cyrus, here is a servant. And at one point in time, in chapter 47 even, um, if this is important to notice this one. Look at chapter 47 with me. Chapter 47. Um, Babylonians, great empire. Before them, the Assyrians. But now it is the great Babylonian empire. And the people of God would have thought, who can escape from the great Babylonians? But God is reminding them, I'm the one that created all things. If it is my will and when it will be my will manifest, you will escape. That's my sovereign plan. I will bring them to the dust. Notice, if you will, chapter 47, if you were to look through really all of 1 through 15. And it says, come down and sit in the dust, you virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a what? What does he say? Throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. And he goes through the rest of uh, chapter 47 saying how 
Babylon has gone from the throne to the dust. Once mighty. And in one sense, that was illustrated even in the life of a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. Because you remember Nebuchadnezzar, and he went on his rooftop, and what does he say? Look at all of my glory which my hands have made. And he lauded in himself. And we know how the story ends, do we not? So he went from the throne to what? Madness for seven years. And now what he's saying is of Babylon, now, yes, you're on your throne, but because you did not recognize me and because you continue to choose your idols and you did not see me as Yahweh, I was the one that gave Nebuchadnezzar his power. Now, lick the dust. God has been doing that to nations throughout history <laughs> because they rise from one moment and they fall the next. They rise one moment and they fall the next because God is sovereign over all things. But notice something very beautiful. I said there's a parallel. Look at chapter 51. 51, 17. And we won't go with it all, but if you were to note 51, 17, all the way through 52, 12, God is saying of his people, Zion, before it was Babylon, now it's Zion. And Zion is going to go from the dust to the what? To the throne. Babylon goes from the throne to the dust because of their arrogance. And now Zion, his people, you're in the dust. You're downtrodden. But because I have a specific plan for you, and because my servant will die from you, for you, you will go from the dust to the throne. Pause for a moment and think about the application even for your own life. Uh, isn't that a great reality for us that we go from sinners to be saints? Amen. <laughs> we go from people who were at enmity with God, but now we're friends with God. Romans tells us we go from a people that were helpless, but now we have the help of God. We go from people that were sinners that had rejected the Lord, enemies of God even, and now all of that is reversed. We go from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. We go from a people who are dead in our transgressions and sin now to people who are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ and will know him forever. That's the beauty of even when you go to a memorial service for an, a, a memorial service, not just a funeral. There is a difference. When you go to a memorial service and you can recognize someone's life for the Lord. I even shared at the memorial service yesterday as we thought about Marge, and Marge has been on the other side of, of time for three years in the presence of the very King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But one thing about Marge and people like her, when they come to the latter part of their life, they look forward to death. I talked to a dear saint that was there afterwards, and he gave me a hug and said, Carl, I love you. Thank, for, thank you for what you said. And he says, I'm ready to be with the Lord. I want to be with my dear wife. And even beyond his dear wife, it'll be, well, I'm glad you're here, honey, but Jesus is here. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Do we not all agree with that? And husbands and wives, you can say amen to that. You're not, you won't be in trouble. As a matter of fact, that's a perspective you should have. Make it, I've said this to you before, and someone said, we were talking about this after the memorial service, how people don't understand heaven. You're in the very presence of God. And people would say to me when I was growing up, oh, oh, Carl, your, your mom and dad would be so proud of you. Look at the things that you're doing. 
And I'm sure they're looking down from heaven and said, oh, that's my son. And I told one person once, no, they're not. They are not concerned about me. Why would they look back to this madness when they, they're looking in the very face of God? No. And they, they kind of looked at me strangely like, did, did you have issues with your parents or something, you know? Defunctional, dysfunctional or something? No, quite functional, quite loving. But if they're in the presence of God, who cares about my life? No. And they say, oh, yeah, when I was playing, you know, football, it's like, oh, I'm sure your dad would have liked it when you knocked that guy out. No, he's not. He, first, why would he care about me knocking someone out? I cared because, you know, that was my job. But, uh, <laughs> but he's not looking at a football game. And even when I travel around the world doing the Lord's business, they're not, oh, Carl, okay, he's in Ethiopia in April. I'll see his schedule. No. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In all seriousness, I'm in the very presence of God. And that's why a saint can say, I want to go to heaven. But I said this, I know someone else right now. They are troubled because they are not ready for heaven. They're not ready to meet God. So there's no joy. There's sadness. Because if you're not ready to meet the living God, You don't look forward to that. There's no peace that passes understanding. You can't have that peace because it's not resident. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, take me home. I run my race. I fought my fight. I finished my course. And I hope that perhaps one day I can live a full life. And um, when I retire, and I don't mean retire, I'll never retire from ministry. I may not be able to do what I do now. I may not be able to go here and there. And, and I look at my schedule and go to Ethiopia and go to Kenya and go here and, and go to Scotland and go to Canada and whatever else I do. I may not be able to do that. And I need to really get to Geneva. And I surely do. No, I'm not kidding at all. Yes, I, I would love to do that. Um, sure. But in the end, I want to live my life so at the end I can say, oh, I'm ready to meet the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, because then, remember, here is Babylon, throne to dust, Zion. They go from d- dust to the throne. And all of us, when we return to dust again, it doesn't matter, does it? See, this is a, it's beautifully set up. God uses him sovereignly. So let's walk through the passage, and he's, maybe next 20 minutes here, and see how God is going to use Cyrus. And again, we're going to come back in a couple weeks and dive in further, but I'm still giving you the appetizer, if you will. Um, And just like I said, sometimes the appetizer can make you quite full. Number one is this. Here's our first consideration. God's declarations guarantee success. See, here's the question How do I know this is going to come about? How do I know that God's plan uh, will be fulfilled? His declarations guarantee the success of his sovereign plan. You say, what do you mean by his declarations? Notice, if you will, the text. Go back to chapter 44, verse 24. And I just briefly bring them to your attention. Verse 24, thus says Yahweh. 45.1, thus says Yahweh. 
Yahweh. And then notice in verse 11, thus says Yahweh. Verse 14, thus says Yahweh. Verse 18, for thus says what? Yahweh. So his declarations guarantee the success of it because he has spoken. And this is why God in this section of Isaiah, remember this is this trial that is taking place. And God is saying, bring forth your case. Bring forth your idols and let them be witnesses to whether or not they compare to me. And God constantly takes the stand himself, and he is a witness for himself, of himself. And here he says repeatedly, thus says Yahweh. So when God speaks, we can absolutely believe that it will come about. It has been said that a man's word is his what? His bond. That is, if you said it, you were supposed to do it. And uh, we don't really live in that age like it used to be. And a, a man would give his word. And even if it meant that he would be harmed because he gave his word, he would still do it. You could trust someone in their word. God's word is trustworthy, is it not? Because we believe in what? We believe in the absolute sufficiency of God's word. Do we not believe that? Don't you believe that every word contained in this book is from the very breath of God. And if it's from the very breath of God, worked through human authors, we can trust every word of it. The moment we question it, then we have to question everything in life. How do I know any of this is true? How do I know that Marge is in heaven? How do I know that we're not even here? And this is all futile. How do I know that me preaching right now is going to have any benefit to you? Why would four, over 4,000 men come to one location to hear the preaching of the word of God unless it means something? It does. I believe it. God says it will happen. Number two, so his declarations guarantee success. Number two, God's personal intervention guarantees success. His personal intervention guarantees success. I want you to see something. Notice these participles that are just running through uh, the text itself. And his use of these, the pronouns that run through it. Notice the, the verbal ideas that keep running through the text. And I want you to, as I said, an appetizer, and we'll, we'll dive further later on. Notice beginning of verse 24. I want you to follow it. He says, I formed you I'm the maker of all things. I'm spreading out the earth all alone. And that's important. Let me pause there for a second. All alone. Why is it important that he says all alone? Because remember, this is following up his sort of um, indictment of the idols. The idols have no power because they were created by someone else. That's an utterly ridiculous thing. And that was his whole point in verses 9 to 20. How is it that you would worship a God that you created yourself? How is it you worship a God that you have to actually go to a carpenter and you build a base for it so he doesn't fold over? But then you bow down to it. So God says, I created, hold on, all alone. Your gods were created by your help, not me. Verse 25, causing. Then he says, making. Then he says, causing. And then he says, turning. 26, confirming. Then he says, performing. And notice rapid fire. He says, it is I who says, 
and I will raise up, and I who says, and I will make, and I who says. And then it goes on. I'm going to take the hand of Cyrus. Verse 2 of 45, I will go before you. I will shatter the doors of bronze. I will give the treasures of darkness. And he goes on and look at verse 5. I will gird you, he says. Verse 7, I am the one forming light. I am the one creating darkness. I am causing well-being. I am creating calamity. I am the Lord who does how many things? All these things. So it's the personal intervention will guarantee success. It is not the Persians. It is not Cyrus ultimately. It is the living God. Number three, how do we know that it will be successful? God's personal titles guarantee success. His personal titles guarantee success. Go back to 44 verse 24. So his personal titles guarantee it. What, what are his titles? Redeemer. Verse 24, then he says, throughout Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Look at 45.3, again, 45.1, Yahweh, 45.3, and what does he say there? I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am the God of Israel, he says. And if you were to just, I won't go through them all, just note how many times he refers to himself as Yahweh. Well, I give them to you, verse 5, verse 6. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, verse 21, verse 25. And I just say that to you. I normally wouldn't do it. I just want you to hear it, just the cadence of it. He reminds the people over and over again, because one may think, okay, God, we've heard you. You are Yahweh. We've heard you. We get the message. But why does he keep repeating it? Because they didn't get the message. It's not as if he hadn't heard it before. And I think with us, uh, the same thing is perhaps necessary. It's not as if we haven't heard it before. But yet we can live our lives as if he isn't Yahweh. And we can live our lives as if he isn't Redeemer. Notice verse 9, another title that comes up. He says, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. And literally, fashioner. Why is that important again? Because he's contrasted with uh, the idols. And he says, there is a man, and you fashion an idol, and you bow down to it. You call a, a smith that comes over. There's a carpenter that comes, and they help you fashion a god. Yes, the gods are fashioned, but he says purposely, woe to those who call with the fashioner. I have not been fashioned. I am the first and the last. Trust me in every aspect of your life. This is why right thoughts about God are necessary for everyday life. Because some may say, well, how does this help me tomorrow? How does it help me in the difficulties of life? When you have right thoughts about God, and this is why the scripture says, the mind who has stayed on you, he keeps in what? Perfect peace. Because there are going to be moments in life no one else has the answers. I don't have them. Bill doesn't have them. None of your elders have them. None of your leaders have them. No missionary has the answers for you. And you find yourself only with God. And even here's the thing about it. Any answer that we might give you, if it's not based on here, it's worthless anyway. Do we all agree on that? 
But even we may not be able to discover the particular answer that you need. But God always has a solution. What do you do when life is difficult? You go to the living God and your thoughts about God will help you in your anxious moments in life. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ communicated repeatedly, your father, your father, your heavenly father, your heavenly father. If you have right thoughts about your heavenly father, then you can say, I can deal with this in life. But if you don't, if you have a small view of God, then anxiety, worry, the hardships of life will surely rule. Notice another title, verse 11. He is the Holy One of Israel, a God of holiness that is operating in their midst. Verse 15, he is, notice he says it emphatically, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. One of the sweetest words that we can ever hear, isn't it? That he is a Savior. We see it come up again in verse 21. He is Savior. Number four, how do we know this is going to come about? Number four, God's sovereign right guarantee success. His sovereign right. What is God's sovereignty? In a nutshell, it is this idea that God has the right to do as he pleases. It is the idea that God has the power to do as he pleases. So he has the right to do it. He has the power to come about, bring it about. Right means that uh, some of us, uh, we may have an ability, but we don't have the right to do something. God has the absolute right to do all things. And God also has this third, we might add to it, a desire to do as he pleases. Um, Psalm, what is it, 145 tells us that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And sovereignty is a beautiful, beautiful place. And Spurgeon said it a different way, but he, he talked about providence. And he said that providence is a pillow in which the believer can rest at night. So you rest your head on the providence of God uh, or his particular sovereignty, how God is operating and how he can, in fact, use all things together for good. How can God take um, cancer and say there's a good that can come from it? How does God take heartache and say good can come from it? How does it take when someone is um, gossiped about you and he says good can come about it? Because we look at the ultimate expression of evil and the greatest good came about. And what is the ultimate expression of evil? That man would slay the son of man. And look at the good. This is God's sovereignty. How does he operate all of these things together? And there is a a meeting of how these things operate and they're in the cloud somewhere. And theologians have, um, over the many centuries, wrestled with this idea but there's a certain place where it gets to the clouds and you have to leave it there now is that a sense in which oh no we can figure this out we surely we can there is a formula for it there is not there are certain the scripture tells us deuteronomy the secret things belong to the lord the finite mind cannot fully grasp this infinite wisdom this infinite ability to control all things in life But that's where you rest, because you know God is in control. Um, You know, how many of you um, can remember that have kids when your kids were small? It's not that long ago, right? 
No, not that long ago. No, you even <laughs> so, <laughs> when your kids are small. Can you ever remember a time when they were afraid? Sure you can, right? And what, what do kids do when they're afraid and if mom and dad are at home? What do they want to do? What is it? What, you can say it out loud. Go in your bed with you. That's right. What else do kids want to do when they're afraid and their mom and dad is at home? Hey, can you read me a story? Okay, maybe that's it. Can you pray with me, right? right? Or can I go with you? I'll go with you. I'm just going outside. Oh, I'll go with you. They want this sense of comfort, do they not? This sense of comfort. And even if it's okay, it's time to go back to your bedroom. But I'll be right where? Be right next door to you. That's kids. That's how kids can be. Now, some of you are saying, I I never was like that. I was always bold and brave. (laughs) (laughs) Never happened to me in life. No, not me. No, but, yeah. If you know your heavenly father, listen to Isaiah's point time and time again. I'm the creator. I'm the first and last. I'm the savior. I'm the redeemer. I created all these things. Is there something beyond his grasp? Oh, but we're in Babylon. God, you're, the, the gods of Babylon are, are regional gods. Maybe Yahweh is a regional god. You can't reach into Babylon and bring us back. He says, no, my hand has created all these things. Babylon? There's <laughs> nothing. So for you as an adult, here's the problem with adults, that you think too much of your adulthood. And now not enough of your childlike perspective you should have before your heavenly father. So wherever you find yourself in life, God is there. And this is his point. It's going to be guaranteed. I'm a sovereign God. How do, how do we even see his sovereignty? Um, his right. Notice in verse 43, if you will. I'm sorry, chapter 43, verse 14. It says, thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I sent to Babylon. I will bring them all down as fugitive, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. So God makes a declaration in 43.14. I am going to send to Babylon, and he is going to punish Babylon, and his people will be brought back. But we, okay, Lord, how are you going to do this? We don't understand. And then now the sovereign God says, now let me reveal to you the particulars of it. Cyrus is going to be the one. That's why he says in 4428, Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desires. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the the temple, your foundation will be laid. I'm going to bring it about. Rest in that. Notice, if you will, in 45.4, well, 45.3, God's purpose has always been his own glory. Do we agree with that? Salvation is ultimate so that God would be what? Glorified. Notice what he says. I'm going to do all of these things for you, through you, Cyrus. Verse 3 is so important. Notice verse 3, purpose, so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. 
It's me. I want men to know that. That's God's purpose is what he is communicating here. Let me move on. A couple more minutes. Number five, God's ultimate design guarantees success. His ultimate design. So it is 45.3, so that, verse 4, for the sake of Jacob. And then notice, if you will, look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 of 45. So he says, I'm the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. This is beautiful. This is sovereignty at work. How is it sovereignty at work? He says, I'm going to use you. You don't know me, but I know you, and I will use you for my sovereign purposes. That's the beauty of sovereignty. There are people, you can imagine this if you will, because it is true. There are people who will not be in heaven but because they preach the gospel to someone who will be in heaven. Because they're false teachers, and I've heard some of these false teachers who are truly false teachers, not just a poor teacher, and we've talked about that difference before. They preach the gospel, someone is in heaven, and they'll end up in hell. God says, that person is going to speak the gospel, and you'll be saved even through that message, because it's not the person, it's the what? It's the message. That's sovereignty at work. I mean, before I was, knew the Lord, I could walk you through the Romans road. And before I knew the Lord, I mean, I gave tracts to people. Any of you ever in that boat? <laughs> I gave tracts to people before I even knew the Lord. And I could say to someone, oh, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And I could walk through them through Romans chapter 10. And I'd share it with them. And it asked me, are you a believer? Yes, I'm a believer. When did, you be- when did you become a believer? And I'll tell them when I did. But by God's grace, later on in life, the Lord opened my eyes. And I realized I didn't really know the Lord. And there are people that I shared a track with. I planted the seed of the gospel. And they were a believer before I was. That's an example of sovereignty. And notice what he says in verse 6. I did it, notice verse 6, that men may know from the rising and the setting of the sun that there is no God, what, besides me. Because he's saying, I can use anyone that I want. You think, well, it has to be some committed and faithful prophet, some committed and faithful king that God will raise up and they'll overthrow the Babylonians. He says, no. No, that's not my design. Number six. Here's our last point. Number six. God's redemptive plan guarantees success, will guarantee success. Turn to chapter 45. It ends this way. God will save. He is a savior, verse 21. Then he says, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself. And that goes back to thus says, thus says, thus says. I have sworn and it will come about. Verse 24, they will say of me only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. No, it is not in idols. It's not in alliances. It's only in the Lord. Verse 25, In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel will be justified 
and will glory. I'm in total control. Aren't you glad that someone is in absolute control? (laughs) I mean, where would we be? Our intentions may be well-intended, but we don't have the wisdom, the ability, the insight, the foresight to order our lives properly. So we rest in a sovereign God. And you say, that's a lot. But it should give you this sense of comfort that my God controls every element of my life, every element of history, every detail of history is ordered by this God, then how much more the elements of my life? So we rest in this reality. Amen? We're going to spend some time, um, just a few minutes, as we said, from time to time, we just want to stop and pray. And I just want to encourage you, even right now, that you might ask the Lord, Lord, how can I, what does this mean for me? These thoughts about God and how you're sovereign. I would just give you a moment to pray in your own heart, and then what we're going to do after that, I'll start us off, and we're just going to pray for Shepherd's Conference. going to pray for Pastor John, his strength, that he would recover. But take a moment now just privately with the Lord. Father, we thank you for the blessing that you offer us in such lofty thoughts. And we think about these lofty thoughts, it magnifies your grace in our life all the more. And that a God that has no need in himself would create us and then redeem us, but redeem us by yourself. We thank you for that. We pause for a moment and we pray for Shepherd's Conference. Lord, that you would use it for your name. Lord, let us um, turn our attention to the TMEI Symposium and missionaries that are in town, others that are doing works around the world at that time would be effective. 
Well, we do thank you for the report we heard from the glasses that um, the work that you're doing in Geneva and this template hoping to be formed where English-speaking churches can be formed, not only there, but be a model throughout Europe. We pray for its success, but we know that it will only be successful, as we've learned even from this text, as you would bless it. So we ask for your blessing for it, that men would know that you are God in Geneva, that men and women would know that you're God throughout Europe, that people who normally might reject the gospel and reject truth, their hearts would be softened. Give strength, insight, resources to help in this need. We thank you for their faithfulness these many years. Your good hand of providence of from saved in Seattle and saved in India to meeting at JFK to a life together in ministry. Thank you. That's an act of sovereignty. How you say you knew before there was a foundation of the earth that they would be here this very day. You knew that they would both be flight attendants. You knew that a young hippie backpacking would hear the gospel in a place that people would think not there. You knew that because you're the one that creates darkness and you bring about calamity and you bring light and you create the heavens so we can rest in that. Thank you for that. And I pray even right now for the people of God, we pause for a moment and let us individually just thank you for who you are. 